Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. Jesse, please don't talk about the media bailout during crowdfunding. I have been advised not to. By good people, by people on my side, by colleagues and friends. And, you know, I have been told, you might want to stay away from that because, Jesse, sometimes when you talk about that topic, you sound a little unhinged. Um, I do know what, what those people... Um, are talking about. I have gotten carried away in the past and uh, maybe I've even confused people about why I feel so strongly about this. Perhaps some of you have gotten the the impression, a false impression that I'm, I'm I don't know, like uh, coming at this from a libertarian, you know, defender of the free market capitalism point of view uh, or even worse. I think at times like when I've talked about the media bailout, uh, it could have like kind of an ugly tinge to it. Like I'm saying, Everybody else in the media is a big sellout. You know, everybody else is on the take except for Canada land. And, uh, and so it makes sense that people who care about this crowdfunding campaign succeeding have advised me, uh, just avoid that topic, uh, this month, uh, because this is when you're trying to convince people to support Canada land, to go to canadaland.com slash join. But I am going to ignore their advice because I, I, I think it's important. I think uh, I'm going to use this occasion to try to clarify, like, why I feel like this is so important. Why, why do I care about this so much? It goes back to the very first story that Canada Land broke. Before Gameshi, we broke the story about Rex Murphy and Peter Mansbridge taking money from the oil sands to give paid speeches while they covered 
the oil sands. While Mansbridge moderated discussions on the oil industry in Canada, with the biggest news story in Canada, over the period at which the oil sands proliferated, he was the anchor, the chief correspondent of the CBC, and then we find out that he's taking money from the oil sands. And when we revealed that, confirmed it and reported it, his response, I mean, I don't even think he deigned to respond. It all went through the CBC. But the message was, how dare you suggest that Peter Mansbridge can be bought? He is Peter Mansbridge. His reputation is impeccable. He is fully capable of cashing very large checks from the oil sands lobby while reporting on this topic on the public broadcaster. And, and it won't stop him from rigorously holding them to account. To which, you know, I think reasonable people thought, okay, dude, like, I guess we'll just take your word for that. You know, I'm sure that there are some people out there who, who trust him to the point where they just have absolute faith in his integrity. But I think that everybody else, it's a reasonable thing to ask if Peter Mansbridge, when he was the anchor of the CBC, pissed off some oil sand CEO, how much money did he stand to lose the next year? That is a reasonable and legitimate question to ask. And the very fact that you had to ask it eroded his credibility. So I think under those circumstances, that was just like it was a reasonable and legitimate question to ask. And you could only ask it if you knew about it, which you didn't before we reported it. And so when we look at the media bailout, do I think that the reporters who cover Justin Trudeau have integrity? Yeah. Yeah, I think most of them do, but I know and they know that if he loses the next election, they might lose their job or their colleague might lose their job because the media bailout, just like the CBC's funding, is linked to that particular party and that particular prime minister. And so I think it's reasonable for anybody out there to wonder if that fact is going to influence the coverage that they get of Justin Trudeau. It's a legitimate question to ask, and I don't want you to ever have to ask that question about us. We cover the media. We cover the media bailout. We might have been the first to tell you about it when we reported on the very secretive process that led to the bailout, the lobbying, the studies. We were leading on that story, and we need to be able to keep covering it because this is a fascinating media story. No other country in the world is doing this the same way that Canada is doing it. Somebody has to tell you that story. And how could it be us if we were a part of that story? If we had a stake in that story, how could I take that media bailout money and still look you in the eye? I don't want you to ever have to wonder who we work for. We work for you. But first you have to hire us. You have to go to canadaland.com slash join and hire us. And I got to tell you, when I say that we will never take media bailout money, that is not an expression of my cynicism that everybody else is corrupted. That is an expression of my idealism. I believe that we can do this work without making that compromise. I have faith that if we offer people the choice to have an independent press, if we make it affordable and easy and credible based on our record of reporting, if it's credible that people have the option of having an independent press. And if we sweeten the deal with some nice perks, some socks, ad-free podcasts, maybe a shirt, a notebook, if you have that choice, I, I, I have faith that enough people are going to make it. 
The newspapers never gave you that choice. They never said, we're in trouble. If we can sign up enough new subscribers, we will refuse this government dependency. No, no, they lobbied for that money and they took the money and you had no say in that. And if not for Canada land, you might not have even known much about it. So that's what I'm doing. I'm offering you that choice. Please go to canadaland.com slash join. And when you do, or if you already have, please, this is when we need you to tell someone about it because that is what fuels this thing. It's not us tweeting and tweeting. It's not us. It's you. Tell people why we're worth your support. Tell people that you supported us. Go do it. Canadaland.com slash join. Ali Velshi got in the way of a bullet. <laughs> Ali, it sounds like they're chanting, do it, do it, like they're daring the state troopers to fire on them again. Is that, am I hearing that right? All right, guys, I got hit. Yeah, I got hit. Hold on. Let's come back out for just a minute. Ali Velshi is standing by on the scene with us. It was a rubber bullet, and it wasn't meant for him. The cops were firing at protesters at the George Floyd Black Lives Matter demonstrations in Minneapolis. Ali Velshi was there reporting with his MSNBC TV crew, and he took a shot to the knee. He got in the way. More importantly, he got in the way of Donald Trump. His reporting of facts, the fact that the protests were largely peaceful, that got in the way of the president's narrative, of the president's propaganda, that America was in flames, that lawlessness and looting and violence required, necessitated a paramilitary response from the federal government. And that's why Donald Trump fired his own shot. And this time, it was intended for Ali Velshi. I remember this guy, Velshi, he got hit on the knee with a canister of tear gas, and he went down. He didn't, he was down. My knee, my knee. Nobody cared. These guys didn't care. They moved them aside. And they just walked right through. It was like... It was the most beautiful thing. No, because after we take all that crap, for weeks and weeks, they would take this crap, and then you finally see men get up there and go right to, wasn't it really a beautiful sight? Go law and order, law and order. Trump has worked that error-filled anecdote into his stump speech, making Ali Velshi just the latest journalist to be targeted and mocked and held up for scorn by the most powerful person in the world. At Trump's rallies, tens of thousands of people, and then as the clips made their way into the media, millions of people have been invited and encouraged to hate Ali Velshi. And some of them have a chance to hate him in person because Velshi has not stopped reporting on the ground in battleground states. Ali Velshi, of course, is an anchor on MSNBC's Velshi. And as such, he comes from a part of the media that millions of Canadians watch, but which we rarely cover on this show, American Cable News. I'm Ali Velshi on target from Tehran. Tonight, Groundhog Day all over again with less than 24 hours to go before another possibly final nuclear deadline. Go ahead, Ali, you got it, baby. 
Yeah, this is just such an important debate. It's such an important thing uh, for Americans to talk about whether or not you are in favor of health care reform. What troubles me is that I listened to that entire press conference and uh, the entire town hall, 70 or 80 percent about things that had nothing to do with health care. Ali has some surprising information about a couple of stimulus projects, including one you will not believe. Ali joins us now. Ali, what have you learned? Anderson, I'm standing here next to five feet of projects. This is the details on 57,000 projects. It is more important than ever that we hold our news outlets to a higher standard, which is why, before we go, I should, nay, must call out MSNBC Live with Ali Velshi, a show that brings out its guests in the most awkward manner I have ever seen. It's very interesting, Ali Velshi. You know, if we were to do these things, it's as though we would have a functioning infrastructure and, and, right. and country again. Yeah. Very interesting. I will pass your words on. Ali Velshi. Before anchoring Velshi on MSNBC, he was CNN's chief business correspondent during the financial crisis. And sometime before that, he was the president of the student council of my high school, Northern Secondary, here in Toronto, which is where Ali Velshi mostly grew up. He was uh, at my high school a few years before me. We didn't cross paths until just last week. Just before the final U.S. presidential debates, Ali Velshi and I spoke. He gave me a rare chance to talk to a talking head, one of the personalities that can feel rather remote at times, these presenters on slick commercial U.S. cable news. And that conversation allowed me to try to understand what might be in store for the mainstream American media after Election Day and to ask Ali, what is it like to be targeted by the president of the United States of America? Wait for it. This episode is brought to you by Thomas Woodhall, Sam Harper, Gary Meyer, Alicia Carr, Graham Rupel, Paul S.H., and Astra. Hi, my name is Astra, and I'm a research team lead in Victoria, B.C. I support Candleland because it provides an important critical lens to interpret our media through and interrogate the people and institutions that we have in power. I also found Candleland indispensable during last year's federal election, as I was living abroad and listening to the podcast helped me stay connected with everything that was going on. Keep doing the work, Candleland. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool. doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge 
research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. So, hail dear old Northern. Same high school. Hail uh, dear old Northern. <laughs> Do you remember it? It continues well? to play. I remember it very well. Yeah. Um, and the interesting thing is that I, what I remember about it was what I remember when I was there thinking, this feels like a bit of a microcosm of the world. And that's exactly what I think about when I think about Northern. And I'm so grateful that I went to a place that had different people from different income levels, from different backgrounds, ethnic backgrounds from all over the city. Uh, I think it has helped me a little bit in this weird world where we're all polarized and in our corners. That's really funny. I was going to point out and ask you about that very thing because you were there like a you know few years before me, but yep. it was absolutely formative for me. It's almost like, like a microcosm is the word. Like it feels like training to be a citizen. Like you had, and not just that there are people from all over the world of different ethnicities, but like auto body shop and a gifted program and drama nerds and illustration program. Like it was just, it really did like, and you had to find a way in it. It wasn't one hierarchical popularity chain. It was, it was a really multidisciplinary kind of a place. And you were a student council president, huh? Yeah, that's my thing, right? Civic mind getting into organizations, trying to uh, figure it out on the on the inside. I uh, I ran, but uh, I think there was there was like a Ralph Naderish kind of character that split the uh, the vote. There was like an anti Jesse <laughs> vote. I, I'm not even sure I recognize the validity of the, of the uh, 1995 the outcome results. If only you knew back then that that, that was an option, not recognizing the validity of it. <laughs> Uh, I think we have to begin with like tr- Trump went after you. So we, we yeah. just have to deal with it. And it's weird because he went after Daniel Dale, at least blocked Daniel Dale. What's yeah. he got against Canadians? I don't know. But 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 Trump went after you. Tell us exactly what happened. Well, let me tell you, if, if he weren't um, untruthful about it, he, he's a good storyteller. I, I, may, I may not mind, but he tells a story that's different than what actually happened. What happened was I was in Minneapolis covering the George Floyd protests, and it was a peaceful protest, and the police came in, started shooting rubber bullets and, and tear gas, and I got hit by a rubber bullet. I, I don't believe to this day that I was targeted. I was there in the group. The police shouldn't have been shooting them, but I, I got hit. You know, my cameraman was on the shot, and he quickly turned to me because I said, uh, the way Trump tells it, I went down, I was hit by a canister of tear gas as opposed to a rubber bullet, and I went down and I'm screaming, my leg, my leg. Uh, meanwhile, all of this is uh, justified by the fact that I have been validating the falsehood that these were peaceful protests. Now, that happened two nights earlier when I had been on TV all night discussing uh, the, the protests and the fact that fire department couldn't get in and there was no police presence because it was, it was not an environment that would have been conducive to having police or authorities there. And at one point, I said to Brian Williams, uh, mm-hmm. who was anchoring at the time, I said, Brian, I just want to be clear. I don't want to mischaracterize this. This is mostly an orderly protest notwithstanding what you're seeing behind me, which is burning buildings. So I was actually making the counterpoint, and that's all Trump has glommed onto. What I meant is that 
more than 95% of the people involved in that protest were not involved in setting buildings on fire or looting or anything else. They were marching. Uh, but what you're watching behind me is a, a city block burning because that's just going to get more attention than people marching. You know, he lies when he doesn't have to, um, right. just sort of out of sloppiness. Like, you know, it's just as effective that you, you know, you were hit by a rubber bullet, uh, versus what he said by a tear gas canister. Correct. But the scene he paints is like, it was great. You know, like yes. here's this, here's this fucking reporter there. And he thinks that somehow he's going to be immune. No, it's law. What did Trump say? You love to see it. It was a beautiful sight. And frankly, that's the only part of it that troubles me, right? We're, we're in the public eye, Jesse. Uh, if you're going to do what we do, you got to be open to criticism. You got to be open to people who don't like you. That's fine. The, it was a beautiful sight related to a journalist. You know, there have been uh, conservative journalists in the United States from Daily Caller, for instance, who were arrested the other day in St. Louis uh, as part of covering the the Breonna Taylor uh, news. I, I was tweeting on their behalf. It's like, w w let's not jail journalists. Let's not attack journalists. Let's not talk about it being a beautiful thing. In fact, the, Trump mentioned that it was a law and order issue, and that was the only part that I took issue with. I was not breaking any laws. I was doing what we do as journalists. We bear witness and we hold power to account. And you cannot hold power to account if you don't bear witness. And every American, no matter what your political stripe, every Canadian, everybody in a democratic country should want that to happen. Well, he does. And you became kind of just an example of, of an ongoing kind of master narrative of this president. Correct. It's not so much about how awful he is for saying this. It's that it works. And that's what I want to talk about with you. When he says to millions of people, this guy isn't there trying to tell you true things. This guy thinks he's better than you. This guy is, uh, I mean, he's fake news, first of all. Yeah. And, and and he's also part of something that is looking down. He doesn't represent you. Right. And I guess what I want to ask you is why you feel like that is such an effective message. It really does resonate for a few reasons. Some of them have to do with us, Jesse. Some of them have to do with the fact that uh, media has at times in the last few decades become sloppy about the truth. It has not signposted the distinction between opinion and perspective and news. The president has turned on Fox News, which he generally likes and which generally supports him. He didn't think Chris Wallace was a good moderator of the debate. So he'll turn on anybody if the narrative doesn't suit him. We have not done a, the, the best job of keeping up with society and representing a cross section, right? In the news, we thought you, there was this side and there was that side. And as long as you put both sides on, that was objectivity. So people came to dislike us and people came to, to follow our lead in terms of perspective and opinion without really distinguishing what's news and what's perspective and when did we just switch from news to perspective. So we, we planted the seeds of doubt. And then fake news became a very profitable thing before it was motivated, uh, you know, for political gain. It was just profitable, right? When when Facebook got into its business, it just realized that sensationalism gets more clicks than than straight up news. And we saw this well before the 2016 election. So Donald Trump read the tea leaves really well. We're, we're a few years into this right now. Yes. You know? Yes. And uh, it's another Canadian, Craig Silverman, who, who coined the term with a very specific meaning. He reported for BuzzFeed about actually fake news, yes. actually yeah. uh, people who were exploiting Facebook's algorithm back when it was much more profitable to get clicks on Facebook and just, uh, you know, Macedonian click farms where they'd say, OK, let's let's say that the, the Pope just endorsed Trump. Total lie. But they're gaming headlines for what's going to get the most traffic, which meant the most dollars. That That was what Craig meant. Trump picks up on it as a as a hatchet against you 
and CNN and MSNBC and anybody who's saying something he doesn't like. And so I'm a little bit leery when I hear you and you and you've also talked about fake news in, in, in a TED talk that you gave. You know, as a pernicious threat, when you know, with reference to Pizzagate conspiracies and you know, fake memes about celebrity death and whatnot, and I, I wonder, it's not 2016 when Trump was using it. It's not 2017 when you gave that TED talk. Can we admit that there's something flawed about that term? Yeah. It was quaint back then. So I think there are three buckets, right? There is that that I talked about in 2017, the fake news, the the uh, kid somewhere in his basement who is just churning out fake stories because it'll get clicks and that pays money on the internet. Then there's mistakes which uh, happen in our industry and are now used as proof that there's an agenda or that it's fake. And then there's opinion and perspective that I don't share. And Trump has has clumped it all into one, right? All of it is evidence. And frankly, from a percentage uh, perspective, if you look at the actual fake news that's generated, the fake stories, invented stories, you look at the mistakes that occur, uh, which occur now because we are so fast in the way we, we tell the news, and you look at the perspective that is not properly signposted, it becomes easy to say most of it's fake news. And most Americans actually believe that. Half of Americans believe the news is lying to them unless it's the news that they choose to get. So we've broken the system. So whether it's Pizzagate, where if you had checked a few sources, you would have known that it wasn't a true story, or it's Hunter Biden's laptop. You know, how do you take different sources that you probably don't think are colluding with each other to determine whether a news story is correct? It can be done. Everybody can stay safe from this nonsense. But who does that? You know, I've been going across America talking to voters, and I met two Republicans in Kenosha, Wisconsin, and I asked them what the number one issue that they think the next president of the United States has to deal with is. The number one issue, and they said uh, child sex trafficking. Now, it's a huge issue, and we should all be on the same side of this, but there's no partisan position on this. Everybody generally has the same position on it, but it's a QAnon thing that says that Donald Trump is fighting uh, sex trafficking and Democrats and media and Hollywood are pedophile cannibals. Two reasonable people who I was talking to telling me that that's why they were voting for. But I think they're reasonable. I don't think they know they're duped. That's my point. All right. But but like, look, I, I guess what I wonder is, Ultimately, Pizzagate conspiracies and fake celebrity death stories um, have not destroyed society. But the lack of faith in information and that widespread belief that journalists are lying to you, because it's not actually that difficult to tell the difference between a QAnon conspiracy and a CNN report, right? Well, not, not, not that not that difficult for you. I think the issue is the planted fake news was invented by the internet and economics, right? It just became an easier way to get people. People are going to click on a story. So they're going to either click on a fake story or a real story, but it still comes to you as a thing that you click on. And that became profitable. The idea, uh, someone like Trump would take anti-media, anti-journalist sentiment that has been used in history, in the worst examples of history, and combine that with the fact that there's stuff out there that's fake. So I've got enough proof that there's that the internet is full of lies. Now I'm just going to ascribe those lies to something you actually thought were real journalists. And so it's a, it's a combination of factors. If, it were, if there were no internet that was for economic reasons churning out fake news, he'd have less of a hanger to put his hat on. But yeah. that has allowed him to do things, which by the way, lots of dictators and anti-democratic people have been doing through 
throughout history, right? First, you start by weakening the media, telling people that they're lying to you, that only I am the arbiter of truth. And that happened in Rwanda. It happened in the Balkans. It happened in Germany in, in, the, mm-hmm. in the 30s. The Internet made it easy. Yeah, yeah. You know, the, the other thing you said is interesting to me because you, you, you sort of ascribed some of the loss of confidence and the reason why that message resonates with people. You ascribed that to kind of a blurring of, uh, you know, opinion with, with, with factual reporting being a big problem or, or, or maybe sensationalism. Certainly, you know, the whole cable news era going back, you know, to OJ, you know, taking it over the top like, where people started to kind of suspect. But like... It's true that you and your colleagues are journalists, uh, you know, some more than others are actually out there reporting things, but it's, it, it's also a visual medium and aesthetic medium. And when you're talking about it at the high level that you, that you are a broadcaster at, it's, it's, it's slickly art directed. Everything is stage managed and everything is, is, is considered, you know, and everybody's got their yep. own look like Fo- Fox likes their blonde women and their awful loud men. And, and there is a look to MSNBC and to CNN yep. You, you, I think, got on a lot of people's radar when you were a finance correspondent uh, on CNN, and then there was the financial meltdown. So John Stewart had you on. He called you the hairless prophet of doom, uh, and I, I think you were called H Pod uh, for some for some time after that. And and Stephen Colbert, uh, he he referred to you as CNN's business reporter from our hairless, raceless future. Um, so this is kind of funny and it kind of like, you, you know, what the, the kind of jokes are like, oh yeah, there is something about the way people look on these networks. There is something like, I, I don't know how to put my finger on it. Like there seems to be good representation of people of color on CNN and, and MSNBC, but it's a certain, it's a certain look, isn't right. it? And there's like accents, like they're never too regional. Like, don't make me spell this. I'm sure you, this is something that <laughs> this, the, 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 the ethnically ambiguous nature of, of CNN and MSNBC and other networks. Like, what, what's going on there? What is with the look? Well, of, I, I, I'll, I'll tell you. I mean, I, I definitely joke about the fact that I'm uh, ethnically ambiguous, and I enjoy that because different cultures think I'm them. And that's very nice to be welcomed by all sorts of people, right? Uh, Indians, Pakistanis, Iranians, Maltese. I think there was a moment where that was useful and deliberate and interesting because you were flipping channels. So you needed someone to stop at your channel because you looked interesting. I think the look is now secondary to what are you bringing to the table? Because it is noisy out there. It is noisy out there. Why would I stop to listen to you or your podcast or your webcast or your blog or your TV show? And and I think that's that's evolved now. I think the other thing, Jesse, that we were not great at back in the day, which is why we had to look for all this diversity, is because it was a task to try and say, do I have one of these? Do I have one of these? My audience is 13% this. Do I, am I represented that way? And, and I think now we're starting to feel more like uh, a mixed multicultural society. So it's not about uh, the number of people you have. It's the, are you, does this look good? So if you watch MSNBC on a debate night, you'll see three women hosting it. You'll mm-hmm. see uh, Rachel Maddow. You'll see, you'll see uh, Nicole Wallace and you'll see Joy Reid. That's just that's it. You don't have to go back that far in time where you wouldn't see three women entirely anchoring a a TV show and and fully doing that. I mean, it's it, this things are different now. Yeah, I think that's interesting. I mean, the the aesthetic th- that you're saying that has been progressed through. At at one point, it was about like you could be anyone. You could represent a lot of different people. Maybe they were kind of like didn't want somebody who had too much of a regional, you know, very specific, oh, that person talks like they're from this city. Right. And, uh, and Canadians are good at that, right? Because Canadians just, are very like, good at that. It's a very neutralish accent. Once you, once yeah. you drop the A's and the uh, boots, you know, it, it, it sounds very neutral. We can stand in for anybody. And we've spent our entire childhoods and early adulthood. Listening to them. Uh, 
And now maybe it's okay to have people who are like specifically and explicitly from somewhere, you know, right. Cause that other thing, it, it, it's, it's, it feeds into the charge of elitism. Like this, this sense that like, you, you know, when you, when you watch these, uh, these channels, there's like this, uh, kind of Ivy league ish or sort of like international business class traveler. Like these are fancy yes. people. You look like an impressive guy, right? Like you don't like, like a lot of people. And I think that Trump was able to say, look at this guy. He's got more people like him have more in common with like the Bill Clintons of the world than with you, Joe Lunchbox. And that, right. that worked. And it was, yep. and it, and it, it turned people like you're out there risking getting shot by cops with rubber bullets. So you can tell Joe Lunchbox what's going on, but somehow you're right. the enemy. Yeah, that's the saddest part of it, because I think what Donald Trump has done, I don't have a whole lot of nice things that I tend to say about him, but I will say this. He he did tap into a real grievance. You may argue about the validity of the grievance of the working man in America, but it is a real, it exists. It's really mm-hmm. real. And if you have any bit of empathy, you will say, I may disagree with how you've processed this, but I believe your grievance to be real. Donald Trump did that. And having done that as masterfully as he did in 2016, imagine if he had done something about it. Imagine if he had said, I get it. I get what this inequality thing is doing to us all around the world and how we're leading the way in America and how we can retrain and we should be doing things. But instead, he told uh, you know people in Ohio not to sell their houses and he told coal miners that he's bringing coal back and he convinced everybody that gays and blacks and women and Asians and, and transgender people are all the enemy. Everybody's got the same beef in the world, right? They just want to do well. And as long as you can point to someone other than international trade policy as being to blame, people will will fall for the low-hanging fruit. Donald Trump had an opportunity to say, I'm connecting with you better than anybody has in a very long time. Now let's fix it. And he squandered that. Yes, but arguably he was the only person actually addressing that. And, and you know, Hillary Clinton failed to even present like, a, 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 you know, a legitimate sense of like, I, I see what's happening. It's real what's happening to you. And I have a plan for you. So it's not like people had like two options of politicians who were trying to actually connect with those grievances. I mean, the disparity of wealth in America is real. So, you know, I, 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 Bernie Sanders was in on that dance for a little while. Remember that the, 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 the Bernie Sanders blue collar supporter is not all that different from, from in some parts of America, in Ohio, in Kentucky, uh, in Pennsylvania, not all that different from the, the, the blue collar Trump supporter. Yeah. I mean, you know, Sanders and Trump maybe diagnosed the same problem, but offered very different solutions. One was about blaming other people and one was about policy solutions to those problems. Yep. We, we can look at Trump's record and we should and, and, and look at the squandered opportunity of actually doing something legitimate. But the truth is he never really promised uh, real answers to those questions. And no. the, 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 the blame that he promised, he's delivered on that blame uh, probably two or threefold. I, 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 this is a show about the media. I want to know about what you've learned in the four years since, because I think there were lessons there. And I think that yeah. everything from, from, from the polling to a reckoning with, are we serving people? Why don't people agree that we're serving them? I, I, I wonder how you're approaching this election differently. And, you know, I, I want to ask you to speak for the entire industry of cable news in the States, but as, as you know, from one broadcaster's perspective, what's different for you now than, than four years ago? Well, I'll tell you, I, I, what I did is I went back to what I did in, in 2012, and that was I, I crisscrossed the country. Back then, I was at CNN, and I was on a bus, and I went to all the swing states. And I think in 2016, somehow, the metaphorical bus disappeared. And, and so what I did this election, what I've been doing for the last few months is I've been out. 
I am out every week in a different swing state talking to voters who I know to be Republicans or Democrats or independents. Last uh, week, I was at the wall uh, in Arizona. The week before that, I was on the, the border with Canada in Detroit, where trade was more of an issue. When you talk to people in Michigan, it's about trade. It's not immigration. When mm-hmm. you talk to people in Arizona, it's immigration. And I think that we, meaning the media, the, the lesson we should take from 2016 is get out of your bubble. Get out there and actually understand what those concerns are as articulated by people with the concerns, right? It, at some point, you you it doesn't serve you to explain away people's concerns, to say they're only feeling this way because of X or the, they're only supporting Trump because of Y, because in the end, they have a vote and they made him president of the United States. So if lots of people are getting their information from QAnon, we need to know that. If stories are coming out, we need to understand what the provenance of those stories are and not just say that in the interest of putting everything out there uh, willy-nilly, uh, everything goes out there. We have to be curators, Jesse. We are museums, right? Every museum's got... 2,000 things on display, 20,000 things in the basement, and 200,000 things in their storage. And they make a decision as to what they put out. And you like how they do it, so you go back. That's what we have to do. We have to curate. And and right now, it's a fire hose, and it is very hard to curate a fire hose, right? When there's water just coming out at you, it is very tempting to just be a vessel for the water to come out on the other side. But that is irresponsible. When we go back to the bottom line of what it is to be a journalist, it is to bear witness and to hold power to account, which means you have to be in a position to bear witness. You have to protect your ability to bear witness, to tell people what is happening, whether it's in a concentration camp in China, or it's in Darfur, or it's in the streets of Minneapolis. And then you've got to ask the questions on behalf of your readers, your listeners, your viewers to the people in power. That's the entire equation. Do that right and you won't miss the story. Do that right and you won't miss who's going to become the next president of the United States. But we have a tendency at, we writ large in media have a tendency to talk to ourselves and we've got to get out of that. And you got to get ratings. Yeah. I mean, isn't that a problem? I mean, a lot has been said about the, the amount of airtime that cable news gave to Trump before he necessarily merited it on the strength of his support. And then you get into a chicken and egg thing as to whether or not it was, in fact, the CNNs and MSNBCs and other otherwise that propelled him to the presidency. Has there been any soul searching there? Is that being approached differently? Yeah. Um, now, part of it is that back then, Donald Trump did get the ratings. Now, certainly, uh it becomes more difficult. There are a lot of people who don't want to hear Donald Trump. They, they don't want to hear him. Uh, those coronavirus briefings were very, very hard for some people to watch. And frankly, for a guy who was uh, anchoring while they were going on, it was it was challenging for me because you want to get in there every 30 seconds and say, well, that's a lie. That's not true. Daniel Dale has been remarkable in endlessly yeah. fact-checking the president of the United States. Uh, but it's an exhausting thing, right? As journalists, we all know that fact-checking was going to be part of our job. What we didn't realize it was going to be all of our job you know, here's the difficulty. Nobody's really talking policy all that much. The last election was actually much more policy oriented than this one was. And people find policy conversations boring. I don't. I love this stuff. But if you can, if you want to hear a speech by Joe Biden or by Hillary Clinton on foreign policy, or you can listen to Donald Trump say crazy things at 60 miles an hour, I think the mind goes to one place more than it goes to the other. And I I don't know whether that's about us as media and how we curate or whether that's about the human mind or whether it's about how brilliant Donald Trump is in in having figured that out and realizing that he can just drop something every couple of minutes. And it's interesting when he listens, you know, his routine, he's been talking about me a lot recently, but now it just sounds like a Catskills comedy routine. 
The other day he went from me to talking about how handsome he is because he went to my started talking about my head and how I'm bald and maybe he'll shave and then how handsome he is. And he asked his wife how handsome he is, he is and is he the most handsome president? And uh, JFK made might have been more handsome than he was. It, it's just this weird disconnected thing. But you, it's like a train wreck, right? You watch it to say, what's he going to do next? And uh, reasoned policy-oriented politicians who might actually solve the problems that we've got in society, don't talk like that. You really want to listen to what somebody's going to do about your failing infrastructure or your water or your climate or your fires or your hurricanes? Or would you rather listen to Donald Trump talk? That may be as much of a human failing as it is a media failing. Well, what's the I have stone quote? Like, don't listen to what they say. Look at what they do. Yes. Is that, you know... that, that, that their actions will tell you a lot more. And if, if you're just responding to what they say every day, then they're, they're defining the narrative and you're just following them around. Yes, you're right. Is, is cable news the right medium for actually looking at what they do, you know, the policy issues that you find most important? Yeah, I, I think that the, the hybrid of either cable news or, or you know, podcasts, look, are always much deeper and much more interesting. And uh, But here's the thing. Well, naturally, yeah. But, but here's the problem. I, I like podcasts and people I know like podcasts, but the people I go out and talk to who don't look at what Donald Trump does, but look at what he says and parrot what he says, aren't listening to your podcast. Cable caters to uh, a short attention span. Talk radio, which tends to be more conservative than liberal, caters to a short attention span. Now, some of that's good. Some of it's bad. Is TikTok a great way to get news out? Is Was Instagram a great way to get news out? Was Snapchat a great way to get news out? I don't know. On some levels, it challenged me on those platforms to tell a story in less detail than I normally would. But some days I think to myself, what's that for? Who's that good for? Why Why is it good for me to tell you? And you'll say, well, I'm busy. I, I can't sit there and watch, uh, listen to Jesse talk for an hour or listen to Jesse interview Ali for an hour. So I don't know what the solution is to that. It is chicken and egg. Did we follow what people wanted and got ourselves into a pickle? Should people not want that? Is the hard work of telling truth from falsehood about reading a lot, about triangulating, about listening to a lot of things? And and here's the tough one, Jesse. The real work is to listen to something to which your ear is not attuned. And that's asking a lot of people. Well, I mean, it's it's entirely unsurprising that most people don't want to engage in substantive debate about policy matters, right? I mean, there was never more than 10% of the population was interested in hard news to begin with. Correct. I take your point. What are you doing differently? You're, you're traveling the, the country. Your advice that we that if we've learned nothing else, let's break out of our bubbles. That all sounds really good. And, and I think that, you know, it's too often that we think that it's the other guy who's in a bubble and I'm not in a bubble. Well, we all have our bubbles. Yeah, yeah, of course. It's worth breaking out of them. But your solution, that the, the suggestion you have that, that it's time to try to build more bridges and try to understand each other more, I kind of wonder about, and actually MSNBC is sort of an example of this, maybe it's time to give up on the dream of broadcasting as something that kind of is an umbrella, a tent for everybody. And, you know, CNN's neutrality makes it kind of in an impossible position. Fox News doesn't lose any sleep about whether it's really understanding the other side of the story. I I like MSNBC to the extent that it's like, all right, let's fight. This has got a point of view. We're going to do it through facts. And, 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 you know, that's not uh, an excuse to propagandize and have the disdain for for reality that some other uh, outfits have. But we are coming at this from a point of view. And if you don't like it, go watch something else. We're not trying to get everybody to agree with us. 
Yeah, the, the problem with that, though, and I, I think your analysis is correct, the problem with capitulating to it is, uh, I used to think that about political parties. Like, why do political parties need to be strong? Who cares if political parties are weak? Why, why do people get up in the morning and think that they're Democrats or Republicans? It shouldn't govern your life. And then I realized that as political parties weaken, this is what you get. You get the ability for people who say, I don't need to be a big tent. I can say all the crazy stuff I want to say. So, in Arizona, I didn't expect my entire conversation with my six voters to be about immigration, but it was because Donald Trump made immigration about a wall. He made it about rapists and a wall and criminals, right? Look, in Canada, we, we fully understand as a country that has to uh, struggle to get immigrants that we want, we have to understand more sophisticated immigration policy. Donald Trump, you, you go to Silicon Valley, they're all worried about you can't get enough Indians and Chinese in on H-1B visas. But Donald Trump made immigration about a wall. So when I had conversations with Americans, they are fearful that our border policies, our immigration policies uh, are letting criminals in. That's not even a fraction of a percentage of the problem uh, of immigration in America. But that's why have that debate. Why, why, like, you're not going to talk the QAnon supporter out of their wacky theories. You're not going to talk the person who I need wants the a QAnon, wall. I need the QAnon supporter to understand that they got their information from QAnon. I need I need the people who are getting this information to understand that they're being fed the wrong stuff. Now, I don't know. That's How's a big, that going? That's a, yeah, it's a very big lift. It's a very, very heavy lift. Uh, I, 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 <laughs> yeah. I would agree with you that it's not sensible. It doesn't seem practical. But I can't imagine what happens otherwise, Jesse, because if we all capitulate, and here's the difference in Fox and MSNBC. The Fox viewer believes that Fox is the tip of the spear of the movement. All we get at MSNBC is criticism from people who say, why aren't you the tip of the spear? Why are you not leading that movement? And, and you know, my view, Jesse, is that when and if Joe Biden becomes the president of the United States, I think my viewers are going to get a little annoyed with me fairly early into the administration, because mm -hmm. I will have to do what I've promised you today that I do. I bear witness and I hold people to account. So when they had the stimulus bill after the last recession, I went and, and took a team and we phoned everybody who got stimulus money, not everybody, but we phoned a lot of people and say, did you create a job? Because the whole point of this bill was to create a job. And I reported that on CNN and the White House did not like that. That was under a Democratic administration under Barack Obama. That's not how Fox looks at it. So that's the problem. We have to decide, are we journalists first or we are we something else? I, I, I'm a journalist first. It, it's a heavy lift, but I would like to outlive these political cycles. When Obama became president, The Daily Show wasn't as fun. You know, like th th this has been a wild ride for your game. I mean, this has been a ratings bonanza across the board. Yeah. What what are you anticipating? What what's what's going to happen to this well, work after? I, I mean, and I don't want to count any any outcomes here because I, I don't discount any. No, and any and outcome. and you should know that about me. I'm I'm almost always wrong about everything. I guess I will say this: having been out there in swing states. Now, keep in mind, I'm not in states that are fully you know likely to be Republican states or or Democratic states. I'm I'm exclusively in swing states. It feels much closer to me out there than the polls indicate. I don't know whether that's because there are uh, shy or silent Trump supporters or whether all of this enthusiasm that the Democrats have seen in early voting is going to translate into a fight to the death for Trump supporters. Uh, but I was in Arizona the other day and when I was there, Trump was there and he was at Tucson Airport. And let me tell you, it was a big crowd. So again, he could be getting 100% of his supporters out to these things, right? So support might be diminishing nationwide, but you can still always get 10,000 people out to a thing, I think. But more importantly, what happens next regardless? So if, if 
Joe Biden wins, does Donald Trump accept the outcome of the election? Do we have violence in the streets of America, which is not hyperbole? A lot of people have speculated that that might happen. And then we get past it's that. It's already happened. It's, uh, correct. You know, we, we saw Portland, you know. It's, correct. It's and, and then you get into what happens once there's a new president on, on January 20th, and maybe it's Joe Biden. Folks who were diehard Trump supporters aren't deciding, oh, well, that was a nice little dance, but it's over now, right? So what happens then? What does Donald Trump do? What do the Steve Bannons of the world do? Do we become more polarized now? Is it just one big campaign again? Or can we actually start fixing things in America? That's what I worry about. What happens next? Because I think that we cannot sustain this level of polarization on an ongoing basis. Something has to give, and I don't know what that something is. Yeah, I don't either. I mean, you know, to return to our earlier point, to, to the extent that somebody like uh, like like a Bernie Sanders, uh, all of that energy and frustration, and say, okay, let's move this over here. I can represent that energy and purpose it. Do people feel that way about about Biden? Is is there any legitimate reason to? So all that energy has got to go somewhere. A lot of people who voted for Trump voted for Obama. Yes, correct. You know, and, 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 and may vote and, and for believe Biden. that hope and change yes. was going to come, and yes. they were let down, and so they looked for their hope. They looked for their change somewhere else. I don't know that they got the change they wanted. So what are they going to do now? Yeah, and, and you know, there's talk that Biden is vetting certain Republicans for uh, cabinet positions because he wants to really, you know, that's that's Joe Biden's comfortable spot. He's not Donald Trump. So so the idea of a Joe Biden as president may change the tone because he becomes harder to target than even Barack Obama was because Barack Obama got some targets just by being a black man in the presidency. Right. There were just some people who to whom that represented more of a change than they could manage. I, I don't I, I don't know. And and this is what I lose sleep about. And, and by the way, I lose sleep about it, not because I think that we all need to be uh, we need to get along. I don't I don't think the point is to get along. I don't think the point is even to come to agreement on stuff. But we don't even validate each other. You know, one of the great books I've read in the last few years was by Arlie Hochschild called uh, Strangers in Their Own Land. And it was written before the Trump era about uh, people who lived in the bayou of Mississippi and why they held such conservative beliefs. And and it really explained and she really validated their, their views, why they come to it. And, and even she comes to the view that, as you said, you can't necessarily argue with them. But you do have to get it in order to solve it. You have to say, this is, I know why you're feeling this way. So this is what the solution might look like. And frankly, Jesse, I, I believe that to be true. But what am I going to do about it, right? I want to write a book about this, about how uh, decades of uh, global trade policy has actually created this inequality. Who's going to read that? Who on the other side is going to read that? You think somebody in, in, in Trump country is going to read a book about trade written by a bald Muslim MSNBC anchor from Canada, originally from Kenya, uh, who teaches at Wharton. And I'm I'm worried about that because if the United States cannot get this right, one of the greatest experiments in democracy in the history of humanity cannot figure out how to be a pluralistic society, we are doomed because we have to be pluralistic. Everybody talks about democracy. Pluralism is more important. The idea that you and I may not share views. I don't know your views, Jesse. I don't know. I don't know what your political views are. I don't know what your food views, views are. I don't know what your religious views are. And it should not affect our ability to have a discussion. And we don't have to agree. But we have to agree that we don't have to agree and yet be able to build a country together. And that is not an agreement that we have in America right now. I agree with your pessimism. It probably won't be uh, from your book or, or anyone else's. I'm not sure that it ever was, but some way or the other, it's 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 going to there's going to be a reckoning, and I wonder 
I'm, I'm no American history buff. You are heading into uncharted territory after election night. Like what, what is the America you wake up to and turn a camera on? And what are we going to be looking down at from Canada? So here's the thing that I, I hope happens. And we realize that if you're feeling left out or left behind or outside of it, you could be a, a white unemployed person. You could be gay. You could be black. You could be a woman. Like the system that you're complaining about has left a lot of people behind. So when you see those marches in the streets about social justice from African-Americans who are fearful about interactions with the police, it's not the same thing as being a coal miner who's out of a job after four generations of your family in, in West Virginia or Kentucky, but it's actually all about power structures that aren't distributed well. You can call that socialism, you can call that distribution, you can call it whatever you want, but that's what everybody's complaint is. They just maybe don't know that's what it is, but there's lots of wealth in the world. There's lots of power, there's lots of water, there's lots of food. We just don't distribute it all that well. We could actually do it in a way that makes everybody happy and have rich people and not have socialism, but folks need to understand that the, the, the easiest person to blame is not the one your political leader tells you to. And again, we're, we have seen the ability to escape this in some parts of the world, including Canada. It is not anywhere. I mean, I know Canada's got its issues, but we're nowhere close to the polarization we've got in the United States. So we need to recover from that. And we need leadership to do that. And it, I, I never used to think the president was all that important in America, or I, I assume the media was important, but now we need leadership from everybody. And the media has to take that responsibility too, to say, these are critical existential problems. This is not about ratings. This is an existential issue. How are we all going to solve it? You know, you get X number of listeners. I get X number of viewers. It still doesn't amount to a hill of beans. So what do we actually do jointly to say, let's save democracy. Let's save the world. Because right now, if we don't get it right, we're not only wrecking politics, but we're wrecking the climate. We're wrecking uh, you know, we're, we're wrecking things all over the world for all sorts of people, and we're destabilizing the world. So this is this is a bigger task than we may be cut out for. Yeah, and I I, I don't know that the old narratives are serving us anymore. And actually, Canadian exceptionalism to these problems being one of them, I think that we're actually more divided than. And it, what good is it to do that comparison anyhow, practically, for the people who feel exactly the same way here that many people do in the states? Yeah, and it sort of surprises me because I don't really get it. You probably get it more than I do. I don't get, I don't get why some of these things exist. So, for instance, the anti-mask movement. I, I, I totally get where you can convince people that it's part of our founding documents that liberation from government intrusion is there. I don't really get when Canadians do that what that's about. But you're right. You're right. That's I, I, I'm not being Pollyanna-ish about it, but I think uh, Canada would have a long way to go to get to where we are right now. Where do you turn your camera? We're talking about really big things, but uh, we are possibly small players in a much larger story. And there are just practical editorial considerations. You wake up in the morning and you are going to put somebody on the air. You're going to cover one story, not the other. You're going to be in one city, not another. In, in that period where we might not even know who the president is, we might not know for days, we might not know for weeks, what, what, is, what is the story that matters that day? Boy, that's a, that's a big uh, question. Um, you know, we, we plunge ourselves into some interesting place between 9 p.m. on November 3rd and the moment that the state that puts somebody over the top declares a, a presidential victor. That could be by 10 o'clock on November 3rd. It could be days, uh, Trump says, possibly weeks later. 
So that's going to be a really, really, really uncertain time in America. And it's a lot's going to depend on whether or not the Senate uh, goes Democratic and, and who who steps up to the plate. And most importantly, there's going to be a role for a whole lot of people who don't want to play a role and who are hoping that they don't get called upon. And that's the military. Right. They're going to have to say, what happens if things start to get out of control? Who am I answering to? Who's my boss? What does the Constitution say? What am I supposed to do? There is going to be some crazy stuff going on, you know, after November 3rd. And I I think the story is going to be a desperate look around for leadership and who's taking the reins of leadership, what it looks like, who's calming the waters, who is not turning America into a place that is ripe for violence. Look, there are some projections that indicate that this election will be decided in the early hours of, you know, right after the polls close on November 3rd. Mm -hmm. I'm not really in that camp, but that's because I'm just not that optimistic. Um, If it's not, we could be in for something really, really interesting and really surprising. And I, and I hope America makes some good choices. I think that the scenario you're describing, which I'm hearing a lot of people talk about is the one in which Trump declares victory somewhere or the other, which seems likely. And then a lot of people who don't accept that take to the streets and then Trump asks the military to go crack their heads. Or, or and, these militias that Trump talks about uh, take to the streets to to decide that they want to protect private property and citizenry, which is also mm-hmm. in the United States. So there's a lot of, lot of bad ingredients that could come together all at once. It's fucking terrifying. I, I mean, yeah. I, I would be scared if I were you and, and uh, I was expected to go out there and, and be amongst it. I mean, uh, how are you feeling personally about this? Yeah, look, I... I the one thing that going around the country talking to voters does for me is it does get me out of my bubble. And I, I've started to believe in our better angels. I've started to realize that when I sit down with people, no matter what their views, human instinct is not to be a nasty, curmudgeonly jerk to the people around you. Uh, you may do that in mobs. You may do that on on social media, but people actually are, are more civil to each other. And I'm hoping that that's what prevails on election night, some sense of public civility. I don't know what that looks like, but that's what I'm hoping for. Let me tell you what I prepare for. I prepare for things in a way that I've never prepared for in America. I, I travel now if I'm going into something that could look like a protest with a with a vest. I was wearing one actually the day I got shot in Minneapolis. Um, I travel with a, a helmet that's got a hardened thing in it in case I get hit. Uh, I travel with a gas mask that is actually wired for audio so that I can anchor or report from it. Never have I done that in America. Never, ever, ever. I would like after this election to take that whole kit that I have and throw it away. I don't know if I'll be able to, but that's what I'd like. That's not what we signed up for, Jesse. That's not what we thought our democracy was. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to go around the world and report on that stuff. It breaks my heart to do it in America. Stay safe, Ali, and, and thank you for the work that you do, and, and thanks for talking with me today. Thanks for this, because this is the kind of discussion that's, that is important. We do have to all examine the role we have in this whole thing, the role we play in the way we fix it. So thank you, Jesse. That is your Canada Land. If you liked it, now is the time. Go to canadaland.com slash join. It'll take you just moments to get an ad-free feed, five bucks a month. Don't even think twice. You can email me about it at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read everything you send. We're on Twitter at CanadaLand. Our website is canadaland.com. The senior producers for this episode are Rosalind Kufour and Kasia Mihailovic. Our managing editor is Andrea Schmidt. Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like what we do, please support us.
hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join. And thank you.